Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about the first 100 days. Let's go above the fold with today's headlines. So last Saturday, President Joe Biden officially called the mass killings of one and a half million Armenians over a century ago as a genocide. Joe Biden stated, each year on this day, We remember the lives of all those who died in the Ottoman-era Armenian genocide and recommit ourselves to preventing such an atrocity from ever again occurring. And we remember so that we remain ever vigilant against the corrosive influence of hate in all its forms. Biden is the first U.S. president to ever recognize this as a genocide because of the U.S.'s relationship with key strategic ally Turkey. Of course, Turkey isn't a fan of this proclamation, to say the least. But many activists say this is a step forward in recognizing not only the atrocities of the past, but also a good step forward for human rights. Terrell, what is your reaction to this? And do you agree that this is at least a good step forward? Absolutely. Um, I I think the first um, opinion I had, seeing that the White House was going to make the step and then hearing the full statement... uh, was a callback to the Obama era when um, then President Obama apologized to the Japanese government for Hiroshima and the attacks of World War II and how the conservative media carried on a, this is an apology tour and are we going to have to apologize for everything? And as we move forward, it turned into, are these just opportunities for us to rewrite American history and make it seem like we're awful and blah, 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 blah. But I, I, I think it can't be understated the impact that this does from a foreign policy lens, from a diplomacy lens, and also a real opportunity for us as a country to really step up and and re-enter the world stage, whether it's the way we want to re-enter or not, I'll leave that up for debate, but really have an opportunity to speak to and talk to if we're going to continue to be this uh, world police or this um, beacon of what democracy should be, we can't look the other way just because of allies or act as if um, certain actions aren't as egregious as others because we value oil in a region or uh, some type of relationship in that region. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure if obviously Turkey is not, uh, uh, it's a key strategic NATO ally specifically, but I don't know if Turkey is going to be so upset that like they disband from NATO or something crazy like that. I I think that, I think that this is a big deal um, because And America's definitely nowhere close to perfect with this. But if, like you said, if we're going to be the world police, if we're going to be kind of the one that demands perfection from other countries and recognizes past atrocities, um, I think that's a good thing for us to recognize past atrocities in the world and within uh, the countries of our allies. But I also think that we need to do it at home too. And I think like a lot of people might come at this – and say, okay, so Biden is is recognizing this as a genocide, but when is he going to recognize all these other things that happen yeah. in, in U.S. history? And one, I think, I think 
kind of a notable thing to think about. Um, and I'm not trying to be right or wrong here. Uh, but with the Armenian genocide is that's literally kind of been covered up as not a genocide. Like that's not, it's not taught in Turk Turkish schools that it's a genocide or anything of the sort. Whereas America's a lot of bad things in America's history. While it's nowhere close to an all inclusive list that's taught in schools. We at least know about certain things like slavery and stuff. We know what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, I think that this is a good first step and, I think people need to just kind of stop themselves for a second and say, yeah, like the U.S. hasn't recognized everything, but this is important to uh, certain people. And I think we need to just stop for like a couple of days and be like, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then we can demand more. Sticking to the U.S., the 2020 census is out. And per the Washington Post, the U.S. population growth has slowed in the last 10 years to its lowest rate since 1930. Damn. Right? Uh, <laughs> Have sex, people. Really? We might cut that. <laughs> or we'll leave it. Oh, you should leave it. <laughs> According to data released Monday by the U.S. Census Bureau, um, there are 331.5 million people, an increase of just 7.4% between 2010 and 2020 in the U.S. population. The slowest rate that we've seen, as mentioned, since the 1930s, which was around roughly 7.3%. For perspective, um, the last census, we were at a growth of about 9.4. Most notably, however, because when you do the census, you get to understand where are the congressional seats going. For the first time ever, California loses a congressional seat, as well as Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and New York. Texas picks up two, and Montana, Florida, Colorado, North Carolina, and Oregon all pick up one. Other interesting facts, D.C.'s population has mushroomed over the last 10 years as we're continuing to have conversations around statehood. And something really interesting from um, 538 is, for the first time in decades, they, being the states in the South, won't have to seek pre-clearance from the Justice Department either before implementing their maps thanks to the 2013 Supreme Court decision that struck down a part of the voting rights bill that turned in um, and opened the door for more extreme gerrymandering in those states as they look to redesign and restructure those congressional maps. So my quick question for you, actually I have two, Caleb, is... Are you ready for this new governmental propaganda machine? I can already tell you are by saying have more sex people. But are you ready for this new <laughs> machine that's going to push for this great uh, revitalization of the American population? Well, Terrell, I, um, I'm i not sure. I'm not 100% convinced that we will see a massive governmental propaganda machine to uh, make babies. I <laughs> I will hold you to that. Well, look, this is we'll see, we'll see. But this is uh, what I think. I think that uh, people have been, you know, having a pretty terrible year. No matter who you are, whether you knew someone directly from COVID or whatnot, um, it's been a bad year. We've been inside. It sucked. I think when things finally normalize to the extent that we can go out more and whatnot, even if we do have masks on. Um, I think people will kind of get back into like 
finally being around other people and that might lead to kind of a boom of sorts now i don't know if that's going to happen i'm not any kind of expert or i'm sure there's a ologist somewhere out there that could (laughs) predict something like this yeah but it seems to me that uh the decade of 2020 we could see some more growth in this next decade hold me to it in a year or in a decade can't wait for the pandemic babies (laughs) well that follows up to another question um kind of like 538 mentioned what states are you most concerned about when it comes to redistricting and what congressional maps might look like following the census data? I'd say that I am concerned about every state where we're at risk to lose our seats as Democrats, which is probably a lot of them. What Ohio is already one of the most gerrymandered ones. North Carolina has a history of that. Um, probably Georgia. Somehow Georgia is going to probably get more affected um North look, Carolina. There, yeah, right. There was probably there was a there was a really disturbing kind of report um from some experts of gerrymandering that came out after the election that said that just from redistricting alone uh Republicans can basically take the house again. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of leaves you feeling a little hopeless. Um, because it really, it feels like the only option is, is, uh, yeah, obviously we'll put candidates up against these Republicans and do our best, but it feels like the really, the only really clear option is to make this a nonpartisan process through the, uh, uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And, uh, obviously, uh, we probably need to get rid of the filibuster for that. And that doesn't look like it's on the horizon. Um, but I think that we should still hold up, hold out hope because I think it's still quite early. It's only been a hundred days since Biden has been president and which we will get more into later. So I'm, yes, I'm very, very worried about all of this. Um, um, but I don't think that I'm going to hold out hope until it's election day and nothing's changed. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned that of the seats that can be um, redistributed and as the drawing happens, 187 seats are at the hands of Republicans to redraw versus 75 for the Democrats with 167 being in a split or commission. So one thing that made me really happy thinking about this um, when I was on the phone with my mom was I recognized that Michigan was going to lose a congressional district, which is terrifying because it's probably going to be a district somewhere near Detroit. It's the easiest one to kind of maneuver around. But that has broader implications for what voting looks like in the state. And then I remembered we had a a constitutional amendment to our state constitution that forced it to go to a nonpartisan commission. So I don't have to worry about (laughs) that state legislature bothering in. And that's That's one nice thing of the 167 seats that won't be impacted by that as well. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I recently saw an argument, and we're starting to get a little bit more into the weeds, but I recently saw an argument that it's time that the House uh, just increases the amount of representatives it has, and I was curious what you thought about that. Basically, for context to the Raiders, the the argument was that the House capped its members at 435 like a century ago, but we've had, but that was like back when we had like maybe a third of the population we have now. Yeah. So why, why don't we just lift that cap and have more people representing more districts 
out of all the democracies democracies in the world, it was something like one representative on average in the U.S. represents like 750,000 Americans and everybody else was several hundred thousand <laughs> below that in terms of who they represented. Uh, By 2030, it's anticipated that one representative can represent almost a million people. Yeah. Well, there's your population growth. But <laughs> but so it's like, why don't we just lift the cap and let the House of Representatives kind of be what it was intended to be? And I just kind of want to, what's your take on that trail? You want another real answer why the cap hasn't been lifted? Minorities. No, actually. Oh, really? There's not enough space in the chamber to have more people as <laughs> <That's laughs> representatives. Yeah. Um, I, I know it seems like it should be a more um, mischievous thing, but genuinely, once the House of Representatives hit their current levels, they recognized that the chamber genuinely couldn't accommodate to have more people. Hence the reason, um, I don't know if people have been following the D.C. stuff, but um, the D.C. representatives always like to talk about the fact that they tend to stand in the back because there isn't a formal seat for them on the House floor. There's just not enough actual space for them to always be sitting. Um, I kind of, okay, so that it makes sense, but I also just kind of, I feel like there's some weird kind of vague arguments about like... We could put them in the gallery like easily, but I digress. Well, that in like, okay, so we're not doing it because there's not space in the room, I think is kind of a shitty excuse of not to do it. Mm -hmm. And like, I know that we have like a traditional building, but like we can still like, I feel like we can, if we really, really were into real representation. Yeah. I think we could make some accommodations here. Maybe maybe it's some kind of expansion. Maybe that's a ceremonial chamber and we have a different chamber underground. I don't know. I don't know. Put, I feel put like them in the gallery. There, there's yeah. all the space above that you would have to do some retrofitting and put mics up there so members could speak. But you could, in theory, fit another hundred and so people on one side of the gallery. It's like that. And I think that some people are like the sole reason that they don't want the U.S. to have... Uh, DC as a state is because then we would have 51 stars on the flag and I just okay, that does bother me it can bother you but I think it's a dumb like, yeah a dumb reason not to make DC a state you know and I, I think one last thing to add to this too is by increasing that there is an understanding that that has a lot of implications right now the electoral college gets extra votes what does that mean how does that look they already have they already have like three votes or something dc does i no i don't mean dc i meant like if we add more house representatives and have more representation the electoral college then begins to grow and it changes a lot of dynamics not saying that that's a valid argument either um but just saying like adding representation has broader implications in this current system that we have but i think to your point when we started how how does a democracy continue to exist? And if I hear someone say it's a republic, I swear to God. How does a democracy <laughs> continue to exist when you have these individuals who are supposed to represent districts, but because they're representing 700,000 plus people, they are never actually representing everyone in their district. They're just representing the loudest voices that they can hear. So yeah. when you see those... Um, town halls where representatives go back home and you see a hundred plus people there and they say, Oh, this was a great turnout. When you look at it in the scale of things, it really, it didn't, it isn't their whole populace. 
Um, and when you look at voting in America, you see how few people end up actually voting. So I do think that it is an argument to be had, but I think there are a lot of other issues in our democracy that plague us and make it more difficult for us to have um, representation of that statue status. Yeah, I'm just very much a, a proponent of uh, 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 we shouldn't representation not... without taxation. Yes, no, I, <laughs> I, um, I just really think that like if there's something that we should do and it's good for America, it's good for the people. Uh, we shouldn't let it. We shouldn't let the excuse that oh, it's hard to do be um, valid. Yeah. So that's just kind of where I'm at with all this. Uh, but I don't know. Like, like we've seen Congress. Uh, it's a lot more widespread, like than it was at all, like maybe a decade ago. But we've seen kind of more of a movement towards okay, maybe our government needs to be reformed a little bit and. I would be very interested in potentially seeing some of that reform and I don't know how long it'll take, but maybe the next decade I'll safely say that. Sounds like you're dangerously likely to make a think tank. (laughs) So all of you probably know the situation in India with COVID right now. They're recording around 350,000 cases a day, which I believe is the highest uh, at, at any time during the pandemic in any country. Um, And many experts believe that, this is actually a major undercount. So I've decided to uh, read off uh, New York Times um, chief bureau correspondent in uh, New Delhi in India um, and his kind of take and perspective and fear really of the situation in India. So I'm going to read the first few lines of his article about this in the New York Times. Crematories are so full of bodies, it's as if a war just happened. Fires burn around the clock. Many places are holding mass cremations, dozens at a time, and at night, in certain areas of New Delhi, the sky glows. Sickness and death are everywhere. Dozens of houses in my neighborhood have sick people. One of my colleagues is sick. One of my son's teachers is sick. The neighbor two doors down, to the right of us, sick. Two doors to the left, sick. I have no idea how I got it, said a good friend who is now in the hospital. You catch just a whiff of this, and then his voice trailed off, too sick to finish. He barely got a bed, and the medicine his doctors say he needs is nowhere to be found in India. Obviously, this is a really dire situation, and it's really terrible. And India is not just dealing with a rise in COVID cases. It's also dealing with what some are calling the double mutant variant. Uh, that seems to, there's we don't know a lot of science about it yet, but so far it seems to have some kind of immunity from vaccinations and it's more likely, uh, it's more contagious than the other variants that we know about. Um, one doctor actually said that, that they got vaccinated two times and still got seriously sick um, from this uh, form of COVID. Um, a month ago, the infection rate for New Delhi specifically was 3%. 3% of those tests had had it. Today is 36%. Terrell, I don't really think I have any questions for you on this. Um, it what's, what's happening is really heartbreaking to watch. And it just goes to show you the destruction that this virus can cause and the importance of following protocols and getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Our hearts go out to the people of India and we pray that the country and the people uh, will recover soon.
Day 98, approval rating, 54.4%, according to 538. Ooh, 5e Fox strikes again. Oh, God. Um, We're two days away from the first 100 days, and I really just want to hear from you, Caleb. Has it been a successful 100 days for the administration? Granted, I know that this is an arbitrary mark and not anything based in anything to judge how a president's um, presidency will go. Uh, it's all rooted in the fact that FDR was just a straight up boss and pushed through <laughs> 16 major, major legislative pieces in his first 100 days and reformed the economy, reformed the American populace. And now every president since then have been held to that ungodly standard. But what are your takes? What wow. What has this administration done in the first 100 days that either give them a passing grade or a failing grade? We'll only do pass-fail because like COVID, so you know, online schooling, <laughs> can't really give them real grade marks. That was quite the build-up trail. <laughs> I... Um... You know, I think Biden has had a great first 100 days. Uh, you know, I, could he have done more? Maybe. But, I mean, he came in and his messaging was, let's get shots in arms and let's get money in pockets. And I, I think that's actually something he I think he said. said that, actually. Yeah. And I think he's been pretty damn successful so far for, with doing that. I mean, he passed one of the biggest, it is the biggest recovery act, I think, ever passed. It's um, up there. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that, like, in terms of his first 100 days and in terms of his immediate response to the pandemic and the economy and helping people, I mean, there's still a lot that needs to be done. But I think that um, his goals in his first 100 days have been met. He's also uh, made climate kind of the, uh, the main point of almost every office in the uh, administration. And he's gotten us back in the Paris Climate Accords. And gosh, I'm probably missing a million things. He recognized, as I mentioned earlier, the Armenian genocide. Um, um, and and I feel like he's done all of this and has remained relatively unscathed uh, by even conservative media. The only thing I will say, uh, and I don't know if this is a big deal in his first 100 days, but it probably will be in the next two years up until the midterms in 2022, that uh, uh, the border, the border uh, uh, crisis, if you will. Um, but that I think that's probably for later in the conversation. But I think he's had a good first 100 days. What do you think? I would agree. I mean, even if you just go at, look at it by the numbers, right? Um He's above water. His predecessor could never even speak to that. At this point in time, um, Donald Trump was at 42% approval rating. In comparison to Obama, was at 60.9. George W. Bush was... George W. Bush... (laughs) George W. Bush was at 57.6. Bill Clinton, 58. So he's running on par with a lot of his other predecessors or individuals in that space. Um, I, I think that, and I, I genuinely believe that we, we are seeing a return to normalcy, which was the leading campaign message and an opportunity for the country to do some healing. Um, but I do find it interesting that you highlight re-entering the uh, Paris climate accord, being able to get, 
to 200 million vaccinations in the country, being able to speak to the COVID relief bill, all of these pieces when this campaign and this administration ran on um, sizable change and ushering in a new era for America. And I I think I want to follow that up and question, has his actions been enough or are we seeing this new sense of politics and and action in our country where um, starting a conversation is just as good as passing a bill to an extent? Uh, to an extent, because um, uh, I think national conversations are important. I think that um, America has a real issue with having national conversations about things. And I think Biden's done a good job of starting conversations about things, about inequality, about um, I, I don't think Biden started it on this, but continuing, should I say, um, the conversation about uh, policing in America Um you know, I I think that Biden's whole idea of build back better is in the first 100 days has been executed pretty well. Um, obviously, his main focus was the pandemic um, and the economy and, and, and helping people. And he even directed some of those um, vaccination distribution channels to to people who throughout the pandemic had been um, um, not getting the, the supplies or the support that they needed like other people were. Um, So really addressing that inequality, I think is important and building back better, I think has been a really good slogan for him and what he wants to do. I think he outlines a lot of good stuff in the American infrastructure plan. He's going to have an American family plan announced uh, relatively soon. I think that obviously one thing passed in Congress, uh, a really big thing, albeit, but one big thing passed in Congress, lots of um, pretty good executive orders. Um, obviously, that's not his. While it's been a pretty successful first uh, couple months in in the U in the White House, um, obviously his plan of building back better has a lot more to it than just a COVID relief bill, and it's going to be very difficult, I think, for like on the path forward on how you get all of that done. I think I I could see um, I could really see him um, getting another big ticket item passed. So are you saying you think infrastructure might have a chance? You know what? I don't know if it's the infrastructure that he has laid out, but I think that there is a reconciliation option. And unless there is something bipartisan, I am actually very interested to see something bipartisan, even if it doesn't include the human infrastructure piece that Biden has in it. I'd be very interested to see if, if Republicans and Democrats actually could come together and, and do a, a good infrastructure or a decent infrastructure bill. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, Republicans offered a plan at 600 billion compared to his, what, 2.2 or $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see if, if, if there will be some bipartisanship um, in Congress with this, um, because I don't think either side is held to their own plans. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see if reconciliation comes in into this process at all, or if if there is some movement here with some Republicans, because infrastructure, everybody wants infrastructure and it's good for the economy. But um, 
I could see there being something else passed before 2022 midterms. I could. I don't know what it is, but I could see it. Um, I don't know if it's every if we'll get everything we want unless the filibuster is gone and Joe Manchin and some other moderates that are hiding behind him are willing to not only do that, but also pass things. But overall, his first 100 days have been good, but the path forward is going to be more challenging. And I'm interested to see how it turns out. I, I, I am, I think that back to the national conversations, America's bad at kind of reconciling with their past, with our past, really, mm-hmm. really bad at having those conversations nationally on a national level. And I think it's interesting, like now, because I, I mean, I haven't been alive long enough to really um, see another president have a national conversation with anything. And mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like Biden has had more or has has taken more opportunities to to kind of do that or at least put some stuff out there um than what I have seen of course from the in the last 4 or 5 years. Yeah, and I I think the reason I'm struggling in this conversation too is right uh it's hard not to compare presidents to their predecessor. And one, while I hate just giving space to Donald Trump, it it's unfair to even compare Biden to that because it's such a low bar. Like <laughs> the, the things I recall from the first 100 days are the crowd size of Trump's inauguration, a ban on Middle Eastern countries, the biggest, um, the biggest crowd size I've ever seen in an inauguration. I I can't. I'm kidding. I can't with you. <laughs> There's just, it's just such a low bar, right? And then you have a president who steps in and leads the charge to to fix all of those problems. In, in his first 100 days, how many? You might have to fact check me on this because I'm not entirely certain. But in his first 100 days, he reversed course on multiple Trump administration policies. Um, he, re, like you mentioned, he reentered the uh, Paris Climate Agreement. He rescinded some travel bans that existed and shifted them towards more COVID responsible actions. He took an opportunity to hear and understand the implications and the policies that were put in place that were hurting LGBTQ plus populations. Uh, He's going to be the president to bring the troops home from um, Afghanistan. Like there's all of these pieces that are are coming into this, right? And I just really struggle to say, does he pass? Does he fail? When um, his comparison was an obvious failure. Yeah, I think his comparison was obvious obviously a failure i you know i don't know if he gets a pass on every issue i mean 100 days again like you said is kind of like arbitrary and um, should we judge presidents from their first 100 days um and is that a good predictor about what will happen for the rest of his or her term i don't know i don't know Mm -hmm. but I, i i will say that i think that i think that biden as a president um, so far has, first of all, been the most progressive president we've had. Second of all, 
has addressed issues with more kind of blatant force. And I don't mean that negatively. Uh, Addressed some of these issues with more blatant force or talked about things um, that I don't think... I don't think presidents up until now would have ever talked about or done with such, I guess, I, I don't know. It's very, what I get is like, we're pushing this because we really believe this is the right thing to do and we're trying to help everybody. And that's really what the message I get from them. Now, am, do I think that they're doing things perfectly? Absolutely not. Do I think that Biden's the best president ever? I don't know. It's been a hundred days. But yeah, I please do, don't say that this soon. I, I'm not because it's only been 100 days. And I, I think he's had a good 100, first 100 days. But um, I think it's hard to predict. It's hard to predict how the next possible eight years will be. Um, hmm. But so far, I have I have um, I've been pretty I've been pretty content for the most part uh, with the first 100 days, especially because his main goal in the first 100 days was all about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we haven't seen all the actions, even though we've seen glimpses of some of the issues, we haven't seen all the actions on all the other issues that um, we need to address as a nation. But I think we will in the coming years. And something that we had talked about offline too is this is a president who is dealing with a very, while his party is in control of the government. It's still very divided. You have a 50-50 split in the Senate. You have the House uh, majority constantly shrinking due to individuals retiring or um, just hold over um, elections that need a special election. So you, you also have and can recognize that his first 100 days have been focused a lot on actions he's had to take alone uh, and proclamations he's been able to make and fixes from his predecessor. Yes. Predecessor. So I, I question too, is it fair to evaluate and, and assess what this administration looks like noticing and highlighting like you have around the COVID relief bill um, passing narrowly um, and all the implications that that had with it, but recognizing that where else does he have that weight? You have members of the Senate who are clear that they will not support changes to the filibuster, mm-hmm. making his agenda essentially dead in the water unless they can pull over members of the opposition party to actually support. But you also have the opposition party staying and stating very clearly that it's really hard to attack his policies because they're so popular, but they will continue to obstruct his policies because they don't think it's the right answer. So how do we appropriately assess this, um, this space and time? A lot of pressure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, the short answer is, I don't know. The long answer is, I think that like, um, it's, it's difficult to like, kind of, like I said earlier, it's difficult to evaluate, um, how he will be as a president, especially with the situation he inher- inherited, mm-hmm. not only from the previous administration, but just the political climate of of America right now. And you'll have a 50-50 Senate, split Senate, which is just so reflective of the country, isn't it? And um, <laughs> Or what it feels like sometimes. I don't know if it is as reflective as it should be. Um, that's a different conversation. It's a different conversation for a different time. But, I mean, 
just a quick side note on the issue of the filibuster and stuff. I I am not convinced that the uh, that even though those some senators have said they're not going to do anything with it, I'm not convinced that that's the final answer quite yet. Mm. But um, that's also probably a different conversation. But I think that I think that you can't blame you can't blame Biden for what he inherited. Mm-hmm. But the the question then is okay. But what is he going to do about it to make it better, to make the country better? And when you ask that question, again, this is a first one hundred days, and I'm not thinking about what he hasn't done yet because he still has potentially eight years to do more stuff. His first one hundred days, I maybe we could go issue by issue, but I think overall, I would probably give him a P for pass. I could, I could support that and. I think you articulated that super well, super well, right? Of it's not so much what he has or can do in this space, and and maybe that's not the right way to look at it. But how is he looking to, and how is he actively making the country and making the the world better? I guess is a great way of looking at it. And you look to a a rather robust and thoughtful rollout of executive actions on um, Asian discrimination, on racial equity when it comes to underserved communities, racial equity when it comes to housing, further extending um, previous proclamations on the suspension of um, foreclosures, making efforts to further expand the capacity for the production of and and um, vaccination of Americans across the country, um, proclamations that make traveling more safe, proclamations that highlight days of importance. So, I I appreciate that, and I, I think too of as these conversations are starting to happen, as you're seeing an administration take shape and do what it can to right a lot of wrongs, but also start telling the story of what the future could be. Um, damned if the Senate decides to go one way or the other. I think we're seeing the power and the capacity of the executive branch to start to set narratives that have been missing out for four plus years. Yeah, and and again, um, granted that the 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 uh, uh, Senate is split and we have a narrow House majority right now in. You know, you don't know how long this is going to last, but you said something interesting when COVID relief was passed and you said that um, it feels like the government Mm -hmm. is looking is 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 working for you again. Mm -hmm. And if Biden is able to pass at least one more thing like infrastructure or whatnot, I feel like that will be a similar sentiment again. We have an administration that I do believe, even if we don't always agree with their decisions, um, barring, of course, whatever happens in the next eight years, uh, that their idea is that they want to try to do the best that they can do for the American people. And then they want to Build us back into a better spot, using our slogan again. I think that's that's been the messaging, but I truly believe that that's where they want to go, and that's just kind of how I feel about the first 100 days so far. I, you know, I'm not. I'm gonna give Biden the benefit of the doubt. Um, he hasn't addressed every single issue, but 
I I think again, like you said, one hundred days. You he comes in with the mess of a government from his predecessor. He has a pandemic to get under control, and there's not a lot of infrastructure for that. Like, like you said, like I think we have a long ways to go before we can fully evaluate and judge how he has worked for people like us. You made me think about something. Um, okay, so still doing the pass fail. COVID nineteen pass fail. I'd say pass. Climate pass fail. Um, I I want to say pass, but I also want to say to be determined because pass in the sense that we're back in Paris Climate Accord, we're doing more climate talk talks with countries. I think China agreed to actually start looking at climate again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're he's putting climate at the forefront of decision making. Uh, in almost every agency of the federal government. He made climate uh, a cabinet-level position. Exactly. You know, you have John Kerry as climate czar. I kind of love that word. I don't know why. But <laughs> So I want to say a pass for a one, first 100 days, but uh, obviously the really big actions to be taken are kind of hidden within like an infrastructure bill and future, future plans mm-hmm. that I know they have. So um, which... If it's a fail after the next four years or a couple of years or eight years or whatever. We can come back to it. It's a midterm. Uh, a progress report, if you will. It's a pass right now for the progress report, but I'm not convinced it'll be entirely the administration's fault if if they end up not being as great on climate change because a lot of that needs to be passed through Congress. Racial equity. Ooh. Um, I don't know if they've – you've sent something that made me think – a bit um, about how Biden has the power to to change kind of or at least look at um, kind of policing mm-hmm. in America, not individual police departments per se, but uh, police departments on the federal level, like border patrols, like 20,000 officers. It's like one of the origin or just origin or largest uh, police institutions or employed police institutions in, in America. And he hasn't done anything with that. Um, While I think that he has talked about it and has made a point to make it a national conversation, I think we have yet to see some like serious action. And again, some of that is the George Floyd Policing Act that needs to go through Congress Mm -hmm. and uh, probably won't unless we have a filibuster change. Uh, So I'm going to I'm going to give him a fail on this one. I'm going to give him a fail. But I I I think that I think that you can turn it around. You know, I think you can. And I, I think, too, that this specific course topic, whatever terminology we're using for this exercise, um, is a great example of where the country has been talking for so long, action is necessary to some extent. Absolutely. And it's hard to pass in this area just by issuing executive orders or showing up in a space because that's happened for so many years, now it's time for some action. I, I will say, I think there might be a notable exception. Um, I might be wrong. But uh, in that COVID relief bill, there was a several billion, maybe more than several. I don't remember how many billions. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to this idea that, uh, uh, I don't exactly remember what the term was. But basically, the idea was to uh, give black people the power to have more wealth, yeah. which is really important. So I think that that part of the COVID relief bill that was, I believe, part of Biden's plan might be a notable exception. And I, this is where we kind of get into the weeds, too. But I do think you can highlight that in the COVID relief bill, there was um, an intentional effort to do more infrastructural tracking on 
um, racial disparities with vaccinations. Mm. There was a literal carve out of, I want to say, 700 million, give or take, um, for African-American farm owners so that they were actually getting a part of the relief that they hadn't been filling under a previous administration. So, yes, but I do agree that um, I would still say failing right now. Definitely, um, a, definitely. It might be fair to say more of a focus than I feel like we've seen in maybe, I don't know if I want to say ever, but it. Most administrations, yes. Yeah. Economy pass fail. Um, I think I want to say pass because COVID relief bill was also an economic bill. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have, it's too early to know the full effects of that, but um, usually giving more money um, in the hands of people means they'll probably spend it. And spending it means good for economy. So, I, <laughs> and more business loans um, to the restaurant industry and whatnot. So, I'm going to say I pass for now. Healthcare, pass, fail. I don't, has he, what is he? I think COVID relief um, expanded some parts of ACA, if I remember correctly. So, I think he has more of a plan for that that we haven't seen in the first 100 days. I don't blame him for it. So, I'll give him the P for now. The past. You're a nice grader. I am a nice. You know what? <laughs> this one this one could be a fail because he hasn't addressed as much. Well, wait a second though. Uh COVID nineteen pandemic is is a it is a health, topic. But it's and he's getting it under control. But COVID nineteen was its own priority that's already been covered and spoke about. I feel like that allows for you to not use it as a cover to say, well, healthcare too. I will give it a reluctant pass because obviously just expanding Obamacare and getting some more millions that are enrolled for it. True. Good. And extending the deadline after the previous administration shortened it. Also good. And I think if you add in COVID-19, it's a definite pass. I think if you take it away, it's it's always good to have more people having affordable insurance. But obviously the system needs to be uh, 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 at the very least uh fixed from what was gutted from republicans mm-hmm. immigration pass fail <laughs> it's not necessarily his fault that there's a border crisis um however uh i don't think i i think it's taking them a while to actually be prepared for it so i'm gonna give them a fail for now even though it is first 100 days and it's not like like we have to we have to remember that the trump administration literally ripped everything away from um, immigration, everything that they could, all the structure, the infrastructure. So uh, the Biden administration is having a difficult time because they have to fill like most of the positions and whatnot. But I'm going to give them a fail just because it hasn't, we haven't really seen a lot of anything getting better since this border crisis started. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I think I'm going to take that language from you and deviate slightly to a reluctant pass. Um, oh, not not in the sense that things are going well at the the border, right? We we could all point out where the issues are, but it is more humane. Exactly. I I find it hard to forget the image of the young girl in a cage on the floor with aluminum foil wrapped around her, sitting in a pool of her own pee because the detaining officers wouldn't take the extra effort to carry her out of the cage and take her to a bathroom. No, no one around her alone. It, it was, it was a hard image. Um, yeah, yeah. 
And I'm not I'm not trying to pretend like the conditions at the border are the most luxurious things ever. They there are still children in cages that need to be talked about, but there is an intentional effort where all of the kids are wearing masks. There is always some form of snacks or food for them to get to. They're moving around. They're not locked in cages, at least from the videos that I've been able to see. And even when the Republican delegation went down to do their stunt and talk about how dehumanizing these camps were and how awful the administration were, not owning the fact that they championed it from a previous administration. <laughs> Classic. Um, even in the image they images they showed, while it bothers you to your core to see our country having these children detained the way that they are, there was still the sense that COVID's at the forefront of the mind. They're being tested. They're making an effort to find ways to provide vaccinations to them if possible. There seems to be some sense of humanity in there that, and uh, I might just be a nice grader here, but I feel comfortable reluctantly passing them. I th- reluctantly. I, I think I think with the context of what the Trump administration has done to our immigration infrastructure over the past four years, I think that... Um, it's going to take some time um, for us to be truly, if ever, satisfied with uh, how the Biden administration is approaching the border just because they have so many gaps to fill that they have to rebuild. Um, so, OK, yeah, I'm going to stick with my fail for now. Yeah, um, I, but I am OK with that, with that reluctant pass. And the last priority, restoring America's global standing, pass or fail. Oh, that's too early to tell. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I've been listening um, and paying attention to a lot more world news um, over uh, the last several months. And I think that I think that we have a long way of convincing the world that, like, we are not who we are uh, under Trump. Um, and we have, we have seen some like powers like China kind of come back at us, um, just kind of snap back at us. They think that like what they have, and I don't think they're wrong. They probably feel like we have been this righteous kind of country in the world that has basically ruled the world. Have been? Question mark? Still is. There we go. (laughs) Um, um. But I think that I read an interesting um, opinion piece back when um, um, our Secretary of State, Blinken, uh, had a conversation with, with, um, I think, the foreign minister from China in Alaska. And they got kind of in a spat about uh, America needs to like, like China wants America to stop trying to control them. Mm -hmm. And Blinken responded in a very like kind of humble way about how America has its own problems and whatnot. And I think within that, there's an argument of why we can still lead the world. But I think it's going to take, I really like the humility approach, but I think it's going to take longer than the first 100 days to uh, know what our standing is. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I said, climate is at the forefront of like everything we do, including um, the Department of State and uh, uh, and I know we already talked about climate, but I think the team, the team here also has to fill in the gaps of the gutted state department, um, from the Trump administration and yeah. rebuild some of that infrastructure. I'm going to give a pass for now 
But we've also done some good things um, in terms of ramping up the pressure on the military uh, takeover in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. And there's been some other things that I can't recall from the top of my head that I have been, I, I haven't been pleasantly surprised by everything, but I feel better about what we're doing um, in the world, I will give it a pass for the first 100 days. Yeah, I don't hear the ticking of the doomsday clock anymore like I did <laughs> a few years ago. Um, oh, yeah, more Iran nuclear talks. Yeah, we've talked about some of the good stuff that's happening, pulling troops away from Afghanistan. Pulling troops away from Afghanistan, expelling, uh, what, 17 Russian diplomats from yes. the country in response to further aggression um, from the Russian government in our elections. Um, the rise of... The rise of um, of what the global economy is going to look like post COVID, I, I would be remiss not to speak to Secretary Yellen coming out and mm. starting to build a coalition around what recovery looks like globally. Um, especially knowing Yellen from her Obama years and seeing the more calculated and conservative approach so that inf uh, inflation wasn't egregious as we were going through this recovery and now seeing a a secretary willing to go to bat to say these are the policies that need to happen if we want to see the most growth as uh, the chair of the federal reserve i wasn't able to speak to these as much as i would like but now as um, treasury secretary i can speak to a global corporate tax and the limiting of competition across the globe so that all of our countries can start experiencing some sense of upward mobility, not just the most well off. Right. Um, the rant, the rise and um, ramping up of our vaccination systems and production that we are we went from a country that was begging for them and states were competing for tests to we're sending out hundreds of thousands to different states and countries um, as a response and as a protection for um, the globe. So I, I feel comfortable also explaining that the Biden administration, looking at it at a, a very large perspective, the State Department, the Treasury Department, the climate czar, so forth and so on, Secretary of Defense, I think all we're seeing a government function, which again is a very low bar, but <laughs> it's doing the things that you want to see in the first 100 days, having the conversations and leading the, the charge to say, here's how we show up in the, the global um, world, the global table. And here's how we also really start setting some policies up for the future that will make everyone well off, not just a select few. And then one other note that I think Biden gets a pass for, although we haven't seen it come to fruition yet, is is the ask for, I think, don't quote me, I think it was around $80 million to give to the IRS uh, for them to combat tax evasion. Mm. I think that just came out today, actually, uh, which is a really big deal because it was something like an estimated like trillion dollars recently. An IRS, the IRS chief came out and said a trillion dollars. Um, is what we're not collecting because we don't have the means to do it. So people are taking advantage of that and evading taxes, especially, you know, ultra wealthy and, corpor and corporations are doing that. So um, again, Terrell, I really think that um, I think you're right. I think you're right with the idea that, Oh, did I say 80 million? I think I meant 80 billion. 
But I think I'm just echoing kind of what you were saying that uh, it's only the first 100 days, but I do think that the so far the feeling is that um, the government is kind of its priority has shifted to working for us. Hmm. And I think to I I wish we were in a space where this could happen, but Lord knows no one wants a budget fight to start this early in <laughs> any administration. But I, I do think, and maybe this is a metric that we start looking at a little bit more. We've highlighted some of the actions that have taken place in some of the conversations, but where does the money really talk for this administration when budget talks begin? Where do we start seeing the numbers really mm-hmm. kind of fall into place? And especially as you're seeing certain secretaries that you didn't see as prominent in, in former administrations become more um, of well-known names like who well, I guess maybe people knew who the treasury secretary was for a couple of the past administrations. But um, when you see that Yellen is on the um, international stage speaking to all of these pieces, you get the sense and belief that secretary Yellen will have a very, very, robust and well-rounded approach to what do budget talks look like moving forward. When you hear that the Secretary of Defense um, is having conversations of how are we more strategic globally, you have this this understanding and, and recognition that the U.S. has always spent a lot of money on defense, but maybe we are in a space where these two secretaries can have a robust conversation of to be strategic defensively as well, we need to move some funds X, Y, and Z. Um, so maybe that's the next thing we should look forward to. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm interested. I'm always interested to see what happens next. All right, Caleb, take us on a tangent. All right. So this week for my tangent, I almost did. So excited. (laughs) I am excited. Look, I almost did the bullshit arguments that have been presented um, of why DC shouldn't be a state, um, but you can all go look at that and get angry at it. I don't time. want a fifty-first star on my flag. I like fifty. Hey, it's look, so pretty. Look, is it going to be a circle now? Like, how do you make fifty-one work? Look, there's not enough white working-class people in in DC to become a state. There Anyways. aren't. What what does a state look like without white people? That just <laughs> aren't the stars white? If there's no, is this supposed to be? Is the fifty-first star supposed to be black? Is that what you're trying to tell me? How weird would that look? <laughs> oh. These are not my opinions, just to qualify. (laughs) (laughs) Disclaimer. Um, Anyways, uh, obviously, we both support DC should be a state. Just thought I would make that clear. But my tangent today is actually about plants. Um, My, what am I, okay, so I am currently pursuing my MBA at Boise State University. And every semester, um, we have teams. And a guy on my team grows pineapples here in Boise, Idaho, which is really difficult to do, but he has successfully done it. And we're starting to get warm outside and I'm not really someone who usually takes care of plants or anything. I don't have any real ones in my house, but I uh, am kind of interested in trying this pineapple thing. Um, So don't come telling me that it takes two to three years to actually grow a pineapple or whatnot. I'm just going to enjoy doing it myself. So don't tell you reality. Get it. I'll, I'll give everyone an update. Maybe I'll do a little Instagram or uh, future blog. Maybe we'll see what happens. Are you dangerously likely to make a blog? I, I've been hanging out with you too much again. I'm starting <laughs> dangerously to make- likely to uh, grow a pineapple and maybe an avocado tree. We'll see what happens. 
I feel like that has to be really difficult in this specific climate. Uh, yes, but pineapple's like warmth in Boise. It gets really hot in the summer. Yeah, but it also gets really cold in the non-summer. I know. That's why you keep it in your warm apartment. They can't be anywhere below. They shouldn't be below 65 degrees. So if you keep it in your apartment, Honestly, you should you be fine. you can keep it outside for a while, too, yeah. without it getting too bad out here. Oh, yeah. good to know. You've done your research. Thank you. Anyways, Terrell, why don't you take us on a tangent? I've been non-tangent, like, for a couple days. This isn't really a tangent. It's just funny. I, I feel like we can't ignore the fact that the Oscars just happened, and it was the mm. biggest cluster in the history of all Oscars. For those listening who are not aware, and this isn't a spoiler alert, because... No one really cares about the Oscars. Um, Oscars, night of the movies, all the awards, so much fun. Not really. No one really likes Oscars. They're very boring. Um, But this year was a little different due to an actor's um, death due to cancer. The Academy made the choice to shift the entire program centered around a potential post-humorous award to Chadwick Boseman. Sounds great. And it, it really gave off this belief that an individual who was overtly deserving of the award would win um, Best Actor. And it, it would just be a really great moment for the Academy, right? Well, plot twist. We get through the entire night. Most of the awards fall the way that they are anticipated um, but best actor turns out to be a complete and total upset and Sir Anthony Hopkins wins for his portrayal of a role in a movie called Father. Traditionally, people would just move on, but what made this moment so awkward is the fact that the Academy was so overtly, um, saying that and assuming that uh, Bozeman had just won the award that it it was inevitable that it would happen so when the announcement came that Sir Anthony Hopkins won he was not in attendance um, he wasn't able to give an acceptance speech because they wouldn't allow him to do his acceptance speech via zoom and it just became this really awkward moment where you recognize the academy has no control over anything that it does And it's just a further reminder of how out of touch the Academy has felt, um, specifically after the um, overt calls for more diversification in the voting pool when it comes to these movies and the release of more of what the criteria is for the selection process. You really just get the sense that the Oscars are on their way out um, as relevant and important areas. Probably not because, I mean, there's no other award ceremony that's really going to replace it. But you just really got the sense that this was a moment that they absolutely dropped the ball unlike any other. And it's not like they hadn't um, awarded a Best Actor Award post-humorously before. Um, They've actually done it twice successfully. There's only one other uh, time so far in 2021 where the... uh... The event has really dropped the ball, you know. What's the other one? Uh, New Year's Eve. <laughs> well, that's our show. <laughs> Terrell is currently uh, eyes closed, looking very Try not done. To yell. Try not to yell. <laughs> well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely 
to see you next week.